Tonight's New Testament reading is John 13, 31 through 35. When he, Judas Iscariot, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? God, I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of every heart in here would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our strength and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. I'm sure many of us, or all of us, are familiar with a coat of arms. What what I mean by that, of course, is the um, it's a symbol or a design, and you would often see them on shields or maybe on a tapestry. And that design would be um, unique to a tribe or a family or an organization. And they have been around for a long, 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 long time. And you find them across every culture, whether it's Africa, Asia, the UK. I'm curious, does anybody here in their family have a a coat of arms? Well, look at that. So there you go. Now you know I'm telling the truth. You thought I was just making it up. If you didn't believe me, you could also go to Numbers chapter 2 where we see this represented in Israel. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. And so here was a picture of all the people of God and their tribes and they had their own individual banners or designs. You see, coat of arms were meant to show uh, something that was distinctive about the glory of that family. And sometimes with a coat of arms, especially with a helmet, there was a crest on top. So in a sense, it was like the distinction within the distinction. One of the terms that's used to describe all of these things is heraldry. Now, you know a herald is someone that declares a message. And so these coat of arms would declare a message, something about that family or people. What message do you think the family of God declares? What would the coat of arms of the Christian church be? Well, I think it'd be fair to say it would be Christ. But even there, there's a crest. And that crest is love. Love is the symbol 
the unique design which the people of God, the family of God, are to proclaim. It is their glory. It is their call. It is our glory. It is our call. And so I'd like to look at those two things together. First of all, love as our glory. Now, when you hear the word glory, we think about uh, something that shines out, something that catches your eye. Maybe we think about uh, a wonderful work of art or a piece of fine jewelry. Maybe it's a, a car, a musical instrument, a musical performance, an athletic performance. All these things come to mind when we think of glory. Now, Jesus speaks of glory that he and the Father know. He says, when he had gone out, and he, by the way, is Judas, the one that, who would betray Jesus. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, the setting here is the Last Supper, and Judas has just exited the meal. And so Jesus, uh, rather, when Judas leaves, that sets in motion the machinery that will lead to Jesus' arrest, trial, execution, resurrection, all of those things in totality. That's why there's a phrase in there that says he will be glorified all at once. It's all those events together. We know them as his passion in the church. And it's in the Gospel of John that this idea of suffering and glory are highlighted more than any other book in the Bible. The idea that the glory of God is connected with suffering. In fact, that the cross of Christ is the supreme moment of grace on display. The cross of Christ is the supreme moment of God's self-disclosure, of making himself known. And that, if you think about, is so different and so strange than what we're used to. I mean, when we think about glory on display, I don't know about you, I want to be known for my strengths. Right? Whatever your glory would be, maybe it's your wit. Maybe it's your talent of some kind that you have. Maybe it's an expertise on a subject that you can hold forth on and people pay attention. These are the things for which you and I want to be known. But here Jesus is saying that the glory of God, the glory which he wants to be known for is the experience of injustice, suffering, and humiliation. You have to ask, how can there be glory in those things? Well, of course, the Bible's not saying that suffering or evil in and of itself is a glorious thing. They're horrible things. But rather, the end or purpose for which they're meant. You know, think about it this way. A pregnant woman comes to the point where she is experiencing the pains of childbirth. It's a suffering that she endures. But the end is glorious. It's this child that's born. And what is even more glorious is they'll do it again and again. It's really amazing. 
you know, if you've ever known a woman that had uh, morning sickness. I mentioned to you, uh, you know, last week I had a stomach flu. Uh, in fact, I just keep whining about it, don't I? You know, I just like, okay, Glenn, two weeks in a row we had to hear this. But, you know, I think about my wife who had morning sickness for five months, and some of you uh, that have, and I think, what in the world? You know, to submit to that, well, maybe we're getting a little idea of how it can be a glorious thing. All of these things, for Christ, were more brilliant than the sun, this idea of suffering for a purpose and a glorious end. But in case we might miss it, Jesus gives us a particular title in this passage so that we might contrast and grasp what he's talking about here. If you, you know, go back to the passage, you'll see that he uses, he invokes the title, the Son of Man. Now, those that were hearing that, their minds likely would have went to the prophet of Daniel in a vision that Daniel had, where Daniel said, I saw one like a son of man who was presented before the throne of God, before the ancient of days. And to this one, the son of man, him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Jesus is saying that he is that son of man. So here we have this identity before us. No one more glorious who the prophets would testify. The one whom everybody should serve. Every nation and every tribe. That's his glory the glory of who he is. The book of Hebrews would put it this way, that Jesus Christ is actually the radiance of God. You know, the glory of God is seen in him like nobody else. But it's not only who he is, it's what he does because the glorious one, right, voluntarily submits to becoming like nothing. The gospel is not a tragedy. You know, the gospel is not a tragedy story. Jesus knew what he was headed into, and he embraced it. The glory of what he does. The one who held all the power submitted himself to oppression. The Lord of justice submitted himself to a mockery of a trial. The one who is robed in splendor and glory was stripped before an angry crowd. The one who is deserving of all blessing became cursed. We're told in the New Testament, for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. He was sinless. Have, have you have you come to understand? that your failures to love make you a sinner worthy of judgment. That God would have a right to judge you, to judge me, for our failures to love, even today, even this weekend, but more so 
have you understand that the Son of Man came expressly to bear that judgment for you. But as glorious as it is, who he was and what he did, we will miss the point of the passage if we don't get to why. When Moses wants to ask God, show me your glory, God let him see the afterglow of his glory. And as he passed by, God declared, so he sees his glory, and then he hears the glory. And what does the Lord start off with? It isn't all he said, but what did he start off with? The Lord, the Lord, who abounds in love, steadfast love, and who is forgiving. The glory... The why, Jesus tells us right here, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, that's not a new declaration. You heard it in the Old Testament reading. That's not a new idea. What's new about it? What's new about it is the standard that's been set in Jesus Christ. What's new about it is the revelation of how high and how deep And how wide and how long God's love would go for mankind. People understood the love of God. But they did not understand it like that. You know, for the last couple weeks I've had uh, the story Les Mis on my mind. I mentioned it, I think, last week. And if you know the story, uh, at the very end, uh, Cosette who is the adopted daughter of Jean Valjean, the main character. She marries Marius. And after their wedding day, Jean Valjean feels compelled to tell Marius about his criminal past. And Marius responds by saying, I want you to stay away from us. I want you to stay away from Cosette. He's shocked in a way where he hears about this, you know, criminal past and the time he had spent in prison. But that also leads him, Marius, to investigate where did Cosette's wealth come from? Maybe in his mind, right, that it's it all dirty money. And as he does, he comes to understand that when he was lying dead on the battlefield, the person that had picked him up and carried him through the sewers so that he might live was his father-in-law. And Cosette then begins to hear the story of how she was adopted It's on his deathbed that they hear the full revelation of his love. In a way, you could say the same with the Christian gospel. It's on Jesus' deathbed, his death and resurrection, that the full revelation of what God's love would do, how far it would go, was finally unveiled before all humanity. And if this love is what Jesus says brings him glory and brings the Father glory and brings the Spirit, the Godhead glory, then it must be the thing that catches our attention. That love must be the thing above all that grips us and captivates us. And it must be so, I would ask you, is the particular personal love of God demonstrated through Jesus 
the thing that has captured you more than anything else? Is it the thing that's in your mind? Well, the truth is for none of us, that's the case. And one of the reasons is um, I think we overestimate our ability to retain it and we underestimate our need to give attention to it. All of us are students of things, aren't we? It might be that you are a student of a particular time in history that you enjoy. It might be that you are a student of certain kind of films. You study those films. It might be whatever your career is, you study that thing. It may be you study your March Madness bracket or your bachelor bracket, you know. Whatever it be, the Apostle John was an A student in studying the love of God. He actually referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not because Jesus didn't love anybody else, because he had made himself, he was keenly aware of the way he had been loved. It's John that tells us things like this, that God so loved the world. It's John that says, what a great love the Father has lavished on us. What that perfect love cast out all fear, that we can know and rely on the love of God. And finally, that we love because he first loved us. There is no subject more worthy of our study than the love of God for us. But... I don't know about you, but there's something in me that thinks, well, isn't that a little self-indulgent? seems a little self-centered. Well, it's not, because number one, God's commanded it. But number two, you understanding the love of God for you is not just for your sake, it's for the sake of the world. It's for the sake of the world. Listen to John's words one last time. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. We saw it. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. That's an atoning sacrifice for sin, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you know what John is saying in part? No one has ever seen God until they see the people of God love each other. God's love is seen, and we'll see this in a moment. I mean... What an amazing call, what a daunting privilege. Jesus is essentially saying, people will know that I am real by your love for one another. What our aching, broken city and nation need to see is not that we're right or that we're smart or the names that we know or the influence we wield, what they need to see is us loving 
each other. That's the crest. So, what does that mean for our call? Now, in the Bible, to glorify means to reveal the splendid activity of God. And this includes his activity through us. In Isaiah 49, God says, Israel, you are my servant whom I will display my splendor. Now, as I said, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is the truest Israelite. He's the one that would show that. But then it's Jesus that turns around and says this, the glory that you have given me, he's praying to God. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's a prayer that John records. It's one of the, you know, really the biggest prayer we have of Jesus in the scripture. And he tells us, about ourselves. The glory that you have given me, Father, I've given to them that they may be one as you and I are one, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Did you hear him? How will the world know that Jesus came from God? By their love. Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer, and I've quoted him in the bulletin. He wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian, and he uses a phrase that I think is very helpful. He talks about the observable love of Christians. Jesus says he will be glorified to the world by everyday observable love of Christians for one another. By this all people will know. And I, I, I want to close by suggesting to you there's, there's three ways this love is seen. First of all, it's expressed being a faithful love. A faithful love. Now, I think if someone asked many of us, what is a faithful church? Maybe someone's outside the church, they're in the church. What is a faithful church? And immediately, I think what we would get to, well, a faithful church believes certain things and does certain things, right? It believes uh, the teachings of Jesus, the doctrines they find in Scripture, believes certain things about God. What does it do? Well, it worships, it serves, it has a certain morality it lives Yes, not small things. The church believes and does certain things. But I want to I propose to you that a church can believe and do those things and not be a faithful church. Not be a faithful church. The Apostle Paul, the great theologian of the Bible, said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I knew you knew it. You were just wondering if I was going to finish it. Listen to Schaefer one last time, Francis Schaefer. And those of you that have grown up in the church and have been in churches that almost wrecked your faith would probably resonate with this. I have observed one thing among true Christians in their differences in many countries. What divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians? What leaves a bitterness that can last for 20, 30, 40 years, or 50 or 60 years in a son or daughter's memory? 
It's not the issue of doctrine or belief that caused the differences in the first place. Invariably, it is the lack of love. And the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences. There are many, many, many churches that would no doubt say, we were being faithful. We were being faithful with our deeds and faithful with our beliefs. But they did not love. They had lost love. How does that happen? That ought to make all of us a little bit shaky. How can someone be devoted to doing the right things and believing the right things but lose love? This is why it's so important that you have a personal and particular experience of love through Jesus Christ. Because it's the only thing we have to offer each other in the end. It's the thing that will make us a faithful church. It's also a serving love, secondly. At the beginning of this chapter, we read, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Does anybody know what happened next? He washed their feet, right? He loved them to the end, and then he washed their feet. Now, you may know... In that day and age, people walking around with sandals, a lot of dirt. They're walking there, you know, there are not uh, nice sewage systems like we have. So typically when you walked into a house, the lowest rung slave would wash the feet. And so they get to the upper room before the meal, and there's no one there to wash feet. I mean, talk about inconvenience. So everybody does what you would expect them to do. They're followers of Jesus Christ. They do nothing. (laughs) Right? They do nothing. And Jesus then doesn't go, man, you guys, okay, I'll do it. You know, makes me think of, you know, as myself as a parent at times, right? Well, because you kids won't do it, I guess I'll do it. I'll walk the dog. I'm walking the dog. I'm putting the leash on. In case you didn't notice, I'll be going around the block. He didn't do that. He quietly went over. He removed his outer garment. He picked up the bed, and they began to wash. And they were stunned, of course. I mean, they felt pretty small. Peter, of course, spoke up and said, well, you know, You're not going to wash me. And he said, well, if I don't wash you, you won't be clean. He's talking about something bigger because that thing was pointing to something bigger, right? It was the fact that he would wash them in his blood. His lifeblood would be the way that they would get clean before God. I was going to, uh, I attended winter term this past week, and um, uh, I'm going to share two things about. One, though, uh, Andrew was teaching this week, And there were several things he said that I just wrote down. But one was, uh, no one could inconvenience Jesus. No one could inconvenience Jesus. But, you know, I would say modern people, but especially people in D.C., we're inconvenienced pretty easily, aren't we? 
I mean, there are a lot of things that inconvenience us. I don't know about you, but, you know, first of all, our, our uh, thought flow, our workflow. What? You know, it's just sort of like, what are you, how dare you interrupt this genius? I don't know what it is. <laughs> we think it is. You know, we're working. I mean, we, um, we see our coworkers as an inconvenience, our neighbors as an inconvenience. We see the poor as an inconvenience. We see the unborn and the elderly as an inconvenience. We see lots of things as an inconvenience. Um, there's this little voice in our head that says, you know, this is, uh, I'm above this with my pay grade, you know, beneath us. But it's that very thing, that serving love, that becomes power. I was thinking, one of the groups in our church that I think demonstrates this so beautifully is the mom's group. I mean, this is like a, a soldiering, an army of, uh, and because Meg's part of it, I hear little things like, oh yeah, so-and-so's kid got sick in the middle of the night and one of the other moms had to run over and watch this kid as they went to the hospital. You know, it's that sort of thing. And uh, back in November, uh, they were meeting, they meet downstairs, and a woman came to the church, and one of the uh, staff of Chinese Community Church led her into the mom's group, and she said, you know, I'm new to this country. My husband's American, we moved here, but I'm new to this country. I've never been in a Christian church before. Can I come in? And uh, basically, uh, for the last couple months, she's just been experiencing the crest of the mom's group hospitality. Uh, what's so attractive is the honest way that they share, vulnerability. And the beautiful thing about it is she's not a mother. She might be the only non-mom going to the mom's group because there's a witness of serving love there. That's encouraging, isn't it? And then lastly, it's a faithful love, it's a serving love, it's a cross-cultural love. And this isn't immediately seen right in the text. But again, you know, Jesus doesn't say everything everywhere. If you go to his longer exposition on this in John 17, Jesus prays that I pray that they would not only have oneness, but those who are yet to believe. And who he's talking about there are the Gentiles, the nations. So he's saying, I'm praying that the love would not only be with the Jewish believers here, but he's looking ahead to the love that would be cross-cultural, cultural, pan-national love, the bride of Christ. I'm praying that they would see that love. I ask for them, not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you and I, Father, are one, so that the world may believe that you had sent me. There it is again. The cross-cultural love of the church will be the great apologetic. Francis Schaeffer would say, love is the final apologetic. That ought to encourage you if you're someone that tries to talk about your faith. It encourages me. Because we often think, I can't open my mouth. I don't have good enough answers. There's questions that people have I don't have answers to. Well, join the club. But, you know, in the end, that's not what conquers it's a supernatural, gracious love of God working through you and I. One theologian I read this week said, 
This ethnic unity, ethnic forms of reconciliation within the Christian community are essential to its identity as a Christian. Without such evidences, the world cannot see the character of Jesus. In some way or some shape or form, unless the church arrives at its cross-cultural mandate, the world will not see Jesus as that. And it's not just the presence. It's not just, okay, do we have people of different race and culture all sitting in the same room together. That's not really love. That's just attendance, right? Love is when people get in and they begin to see the self-giving love of that. People working through hard conversations about culture and racism. People going, I want to know your story. People even yielding their preferences in worship. Uh, Again, at winter term, uh, I was listening to the recordings of Pastor Joel. And and all these, I, I want to encourage you, if you couldn't go, listen to these recordings. They're on the website, RACC website. I think under sermons you can find them. Uh, But he said, Joel said, we are a cross-cultural church. But if we don't have cross-cultural worship, guess what? We're not a cross-cultural church. We're not. We're not displaying what that beauty and oneness would look like. Right? And I'm not saying that every, heaven's going to be the great display, right? If we tried to do music from every culture here, that would, well, we couldn't, right? We don't even have the skills to do that. We don't have the ears to hear that. Joel was going on about, uh, you know, these uh, certain music he was playing and said, uh, you know, by the way, those musical notes aren't in the Western scale. They're kind of like in between. You know, when you hear the singing, it's kind of like, that sort of stuff. And you're going, what the heck is that? They're getting to notes you hadn't even heard. I hadn't heard. It's going to be a beautiful thing in heaven. But it's a faithful, serving, cross-cultural love that becomes this crest. And so, beloved family of God, let's keep our eye on the mark. We need to help each other do that. There's plenty of things we're going to wrestle with. It might be vision and theology. It's certainly going to be politics in this town. I mean, one of the distinctives we could be, we've always... Uh, been striving to have a congregation that's, that's not of one political stripe. From the beginning, we've said, you know, the, the kingdom of Jesus turns right and left. And if you think it's one, well, I would press you to read the scriptures a little bit better. But I mean, that one particular area, what, what a way the church could be the church where I can genuinely say, you know, you and I stridently disagree, but no one would watch us without knowing that, man, I love you so much. My love, that our love for each other is so strong. And it's shown through these invisible acts, little things. So, that's our banner. That's our crest. That's our prayer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that your banner over us is love. Make it so. In Christ's name, amen.